Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Sebastian Truhl, your host for today, and I am talking to Professor Brett Carr, author of Bombs in the Consulting Room, Surviving Psychological Shrapnel, which was published by Rutledge in 2019. Professor Carr, as I'm sure, needs no further introduction for many in the listening audience, but uh, I will give a short overview of his work anyway. He has worked in the mental health profession for over 40 years. He is senior fellow at the Tavistock Institute of Medical Psychology in London and trustee of the Freud Museum London. Professor Carr is author of some 14 books on psychoanalysis and series editor of over 55 additional titles. Formerly resident psychotherapist on BBC Radio, currently works full-time in independent practice with individuals and couples in central London. You are very welcome to the program, Brad. Greetings to you, Sebastian. It's a privilege for me to be part of New Books in Psychoanalysis. I have been listening to your podcast, I, I think, since its very inception. Oh, wow. And, and I'm a huge fan of the work that you and your colleagues do. I think it's a marvelous way to disseminate psychological knowledge to well, to the whole world, really. I think it's absolutely terrific. Thank you very much. That actually means a lot coming from you because you have been so active uh, in, in, like, so very active in the dissemination of psychoanalytic knowledge uh, all over the world as well. And uh, it's, it's nice to get that kind of recognition from you specifically. But to get uh, to, get to the book, so to say... Um, you're writing about survival, and only last year you wrote a book about flourishing as a psychotherapist. How did we get back to mere survival? <laughs> that is an excellent question, Sebastian. Just to contextualize it, you'll know that back in 1993, the lovely, lovely English psychoanalyst Dr. Nina Coltart wrote a very important book called How to Survive as a Psychotherapist. And I, I read that along with so many other people, and I thought it was a terrific book. But I suppose as I've aged, and as I've worked with more and more young colleagues, students, supervisees, and so forth, I've come to realize that although it is very important to survive, one can't really have a proper career, a rich career, in the psychological world, simply by surviving. 
one needs to find a way to be more creative, more adventurous, to own one's authority more fully, more richly. And that is what prompted me to write a book very much stimulated by Nina Coltart's book. And, and mine is called not how to survive as a psychotherapist, but how to flourish as a psychotherapist. Uh, because I've met too many colleagues in our profession who are very burnt out after decades of work. And I think part of the reason is that they haven't found ways to really find their voice, whether as writers, as teachers, as creators of new ways of thinking, as theoreticians. So I think that we have to move from surviving to flourishing. But with our more dangerous patients, with our more damaged patients, if I can describe them that way, sometimes simply surviving physically the attacks that one can receive in the consulting room, especially when one works with very psychotic patients, uh, and particularly with forensic patients, patients who've committed very gross acts of criminality, then one also has to survive. And sometimes survival is a great achievement. So I think you put your finger on something very important, which is the tension that every psychological practitioner must navigate between surviving on the one hand and aspiring towards something more blue sky, call it flourishing, on the other hand. But there, there, there seems to be a very intimate link between the two, actually, or I would say between um, survival and, and on the one hand and creativity uh, on the other hand. And just to give the listening audience a, a little overview over the book, there are five clinical chapters in the book in which you discuss cases from uh, work with individual patients and cases from couples uh, therapy. But then there are also three historical chapters. And there's actually a very, very interesting chapter on Donald Winnicott, who is who is one of your, I don't know how to say, heroes. One you're of one my of heroes, the, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely. definitely one of, one, of the, <laughs> one of the foremost Winnicott scholars in the world. And in this chapter, I think you, you paint a very... Uh, intimate picture about uh, Winnicott's struggle in working with very, very sick patients and in his difficulties in, how, how should I say, transforming the hatred he felt uh, into creativity and even into a, a world-renowned paper of uh, the title Hate and the Counter-Transference. Yes. No, no, th thank you for making that observation. Yes, I suppose the book is, is perhaps a, bit, a little bit unusual in that, as you said, it begins with, with very, very, some very dramatic clinical cases. But then I put on my hat as an historian of psychoanalysis and, and try to investigate what we can learn from some of our great heroes and heroines of the past. And, and you're quite right, Donald Winnicott is a a great hero and inspirer to me and to, to, to thousands of, of other psychoanalytical practitioners all over the world. And yet, I think it can be very dangerous to idealize our heroes, just as it 
can be very dangerous for us to idealize our parents or for our patients to idealize us at at times. And I really tried to explore in that historical chapter the more shadow side of Winnicott's practice, because I think one of the reasons he ended up being the genius who wrote the paper, Hate and the Countertransference, about how very, very, very ill patients, very psychotic patients can really drive the clinician to the point of almost madness at times. He talks about his own dreams of of falling and disintegrating and, and being in a state of great psychological danger. And I think part of the reason that Winnicott was aware of hate and the countertransference, hateful feelings that get generated by often hateful patients, is that A, he was brave enough to take on these patients in the first place, which many of his colleagues did not have the courage to do. But also Winnicott, and and we mustn't forget, Winnicott worked many, many years ago and didn't have the, the benefit of much of the knowledge that we have today. He also took patients into his private domestic home. And I think that's not well known. That has really emerged through the decades of work that I've done scouring Winnicott's archives in both sides of the Atlantic, on both sides of the Atlantic, but also having interviewed very large numbers of his surviving patients and literally hundreds of his colleagues who survived, many of whom now sadly have, have, have died. But it's not widely known that in the 1930s and 1940s, Winnicott provided a refuge in his private domestic home in North London for many psychiatric patients. So he was working at the hospital during the daytime. He was working in his private practice in central London in the daytime. And then he came home at night and spent his evenings and his weekends with many patients. Now, one might say that he was a saintly hero to have done that. But I do put forward the view that this contributed to the end of his first marriage to his 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 uh, initial spouse, Alice Winnicott, before he married his, his second wife, Claire Winnicott. And I do think it also contributed to the development of his, his very severe cardiac illnesses because he had, he had no space to stop working. So I use Winnicott in the late 1930s, early 1940s as an example of a clinician, not, not one who has bombs thrown at him or her, but as a clinician who, in a way, invited the bombs into his own home. Yeah, yeah. And there's actually a, a similarity between your work and Winnicott's work, because in the clinical chapters, you describe yourself working with very, very disturbed patients, with uh, one nonverbal patient, with, with uh, forensic patients. Uh, and you describe, I think, um, a very empathic way of working with these people, uh, a transformative way. But there's also a huge difference to the work um, uh, as you describe Winnicott did. And the difference to me seems that you have a very solid, very secure frame, a very boundary setting in, in place. Sebastian, I just absolutely love the the real precision with which you get to the real core of 
of of the book. I think it's 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 fantastic. That's that's really really important observation. Yes, I mean, th- there's no doubt that I absolutely adore Winnicott's creativity and his courage and his bravery, but the way in which people work psychoanalytically now is very different to how it was done in the 1910s, in the 1940s, even in the 1960s. And we do now have a formalized theory of what we would call boundaries. We know that the framework, the boundary framework of sticking to the analytical hour, of sticking to the task, the nature of the task, of not confusing what goes on outside the consulting room with what goes on inside the consulting room is deeply, deeply containing for our patients and I think gives them much more professional trust in us. You know, Winnicott was a great experimenter and, you know, back in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, I think the, the pioneers had to experiment or they would never have known what works and what doesn't work. But we now know that it's not very helpful to take your patients out to dinner. It's not very helpful to give them a three-hour session one day when you've given them a 50-minute session the previous day. So although in an historical perspective, I admire Winnicott's creativity and his willingness to explore, just as I admire Freud's willingness to explore. You know, Freud used to buy presents for his patients if they bought presents for him. Whereas I think nowadays, most psychoanalytical clinicians would would not go out to shops and buy, you know, books or bottles of champagne or, or whatever for, as Christmas presents. We have a very clear professional role, which is that it is our insight based on the patient's narrative, which is the main present that we try to provide many times in every single session. So we're, we're very privileged to be working in the 21st century because we've really benefited from many of the quite understandable technical errors that our forefathers and foremothers had made. And also, I want to mention at this point the work of the great American psychoanalyst Robert Langs. And when he started writing in the 1970s, he made himself very unpopular because everybody considered that his work on boundaries was very finger-wagging, very super-ego-like, you know, because he was really insistent on the importance of boundaries. But he must have written about 40 books before he died, and they are all, in my estimation, true masterpieces about the dangers of not adhering to a very, very clear framework and a very clear model of professionalism. So I've learned a great deal from Robert Langs. And I think for those younger listeners who haven't grown up on Langs's work, he's really worth investigating. It's really interesting that you you bring into play the way in which uh, he was experienced uh, uh, as, as finger-wagging, kind of uh, uh, super-ego-ish. Uh, because full disclosure, that's actually somewhat an experience I had with your writing ah. <laughs> uh, in, to, to a certain degree, because in, in how to flourish as a, as a psychotherapist, you set very high standards for practitioners, but then 
reading this book now, Bombs in the Consulting Room, it was for me kind of a, um, a revelation in, in the way in which uh, your way of working actually uh, all of a sudden made sense. It, it came together in a way because I really liked the the um, clinical chapters in combination with the historical chapters because uh, what's, what's really clear is how the two work together. Like you were saying, learning from the mistakes of our forefathers and foremothers. And I think you make a very good point in the clinical chapters of showing what is, what, what is possible when one adheres to um, new standards of technique, modern ways of working psychoanalytically uh, with with the knowledge in mind that we acquired from from sadly some some very sad mistakes that happened in the past yes i th i think you phrased that very well i certainly believe that we can learn from the errors of our predecessors i don't think every one of us has to reinvent the wheel There is so much magnificent literature published in psychoanalysis. You know, Freud, Freud first used the word psychoanalysis back in 1896. So we have a century and a quarter of psychoanalytical publications. And I suppose that if I can be at times finger-wagging with my students, with my trainees, it generally is around the subject of, it generally is around the subject of reading. I, I often say to my students, you know, my goodness, you're all wonderfully warm and compassionate clinicians, but you really need to read the literature in a more encyclopedic fashion. So I, I do take full, full responsibility for the fact that I can be finger-wagging in that respect, because I do think that, that we do not study the material in the same scholarly way that we would have done in previous generations partly because the literature is so enormous. And I think uh, something such as new books in psychoanalysis, hopefully, will help listeners to get a better sense of what literature is out there and will inspire people to spend more time reading rather than less, because there's so much that we can learn from all the people who came before us. Oh, definitely. And yeah, I hope, I hope we can contribute uh, in that respect. But um, what what I was thinking just as you were talking was about um, about what happens inside that very sturdy, very secure frame that you set up. Because what was really inspiring to me in this book is the way in which you rely on interpretation, uh, even for the very very disturbed patients, and that is something that that I think practitioners, especially in psychiatric settings, need to see, need to read about. Because we so often are confronted working in hospital settings with, um, you know, patients who have been restrained, patients who are acted upon. And just to see someone like yourself working with forensic patients, with nonverbal patients, in a very clear interpretive manner is so uh, inspiring. Thank you, Sebastian. It's very interesting, the question of interpretation, you know. Uh, speaking of, of the gentleman I mentioned earlier, Robert Langs, I, I had the privilege of meeting him quite a number of times over 
the years. In fact, when I was a very, very um, young psychologist uh, and, and making my first steps in doing broadcasts on, on radio and television, I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Langs for a television program. And he was an utter delight, a real gentleman, and so bright. I learned so much from him. And he had been trained at the Downstate Psychoanalytic Institute in New York. And his teachers included the famous Dr. Max Schur, who many listeners will remember was Freud's physician during the final the final years, indeed the final hours of his life. It was it was Max Schur who administered the the fatal dose of morphine to the very, very ill Sigmund Freud. So Robert Langs was actually trained by Max Schur. And he told me that when he did his psychoanalytical training in the 1960s, his teachers used to say, there are only two things that you need to know about psychoanalytical practice. Patients project and analysts interpret. Patients are full of all of this infantile traumata and complicated sexual feelings and aggressive feelings, and they project them onto the analyst. And the analyst has only one responsibility, which is to interpret the unconscious meaning. So one might say that the very bedrock of early old school psychoanalysis was was very much dependent upon interpretation, by which I mean that art of translating the unconscious into something more understandable, more manageable, more digestible. But I think in more recent decades, I think particularly during the 1980s and 1990s, with the growth of what is now called relational psychoanalysis, and some of my best friends and comrades are are key figures in the, the relational psychoanalysis movement, interpretation started to get a very bad name. I think there was an idea that there was something rather old school and patrician about psychoanalytical practitioners, psychotherapeutic practitioners, who would simply say to the patient, ah, what you're really telling me, Mr. X, or what you're really telling me, Mrs. Y, is such and such, as though the analyst knows more than the patient. And I've never really quite understood this very powerful differentiation between classical psychoanalysis and relational psychoanalysis. Because from my perspective, and, and I may be very idiosyncratic in this, in this regard, I have always thought that by interpreting in a kindly voice, in a tentative manner at times, offering an interpretive suggestion about what might be the hidden meaning, actually enhances the relationality between the patient and the clinician. So I've never fully understood why these two groups have sometimes created, you know, different book series, different clinic organizations. And, uh, you know, I'm all for, for us having as, as many different voices in the psychological world as possible. But to me, interpretation is the height of relationality and not the antithesis. And I think especially working with forensic patients and nonverbal patients who often will go an entire session unable to say a word, some, some are brain damaged and have no capacity to speak, 
Some are in catatonic schizophrenic states and are too frightened and traumatized to speak. And some who are forensic patients, in other words, criminal patients, are in too contemptuous a state of mind so that even though they have the physical capacity to speak and quite a lot that they want to say, they withhold their free associations as an attack on the analyst and as an attack on themselves. So with these particularly challenging groups of patients, one one really needs to be able to draw upon a century of good interpretative knowledge. And and let me just say, for, for those people who might be listening to this podcast who are not mental health practitioners, but might be analyzans or might be people curious about entering therapy or analysis in some fashion, you know, 95% of the patients who come to see us are very, very good citizens. They're honorable, they're decent, they're ethical, they're hardworking. They're often very high-functioning people, and, and, and they're a pleasure and a privilege to work with. But, but sadly, we do have some people who've had really horrific histories, and these are the patients who, as I describe in the book, these are the patients who throw bombs into the consulting room, sometimes perpetrating acts of physical violence, sometimes threatening us with physical violence, sometimes being extremely verbally contemptuous to us, and and so forth. You know, I talked about the patients who knocked over a bookshelf and patients who spit upon the consulting room and who pretend that they brought a gun into the consulting room and so on and so on. So I think that I would not have been able to even begin to work with these patients if I did not feel that I'd really absorbed as much as I could of Freud, of Klein, of Winnicott, you know, all the great heroes and heroines. And I think having having really started out as a as a young kid of being so interested in the history, I think studying history actually made me a much more robust clinician. Yeah, I I, I get that sense as well, but but then I was also thinking just now about um, your acknowledgments in the book, which actually read like a who's who of British <laughs> psychotherapy. And and um, I really got a sense of, of how you as a clinician were and are sustained by your collegial contacts and supervisions and intervisions and, and, and case discussions. I was, I was really very, very fortunate, I would say, to have entered the field at a time when we still had in London, maybe, I don't know, maybe a hundred people still living who knew all the great figures from the 1920s and the 1930s. So wearing my historian's hat, wearing my oral historian's hat, I, I, I made it my, my mission to interview as many of these very, very elderly teachers as I could before they died. So I was, I mean, for example, you know, back in, back in the 90, early 1980s, I simply wrote to John Bowlby, whose work I utterly adored, 
and I was a I was a youngster at university at that time, and I had organized a, a series of psychoanalytical seminars because the psychology teachers at my university absolutely hated Freud. They told me they told me you know Carr, if you read Freud, you will be setting back psychology by fifty years. Freud is completely unscientific and completely misproven. So I had to do all my Freud reading in secret, really. And I set up a a regular weekly lecture series where I invited all these elderly psychoanalysts to come to my university to speak, you know, including people like like John Bowlby. And it it was such an honor to meet this remarkable man who was warm hearted and kindly. But he told me about, you know, 50 stories about what it was like practicing psychoanalysis in the late 1920s and early 1930s. So I I feel very grateful that I have so many of these stories inside. And I like to draw upon them when I'm doing teaching, when I'm doing writing, as, as object lessons about what to do and also what not to do. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And I think what what's really interesting in the cases is um, the, the sense the sense that you get as a reader how much you trust in the psychoanalytic method and how the trust actually helps you to find your feet in situations where you're just stupefied by by what is going on before your eyes. Like, for example, in the case with the the one nonverbal patient you describe, Albertina, um, who's just dropping bombs of saliva in in the in the consulting room. We we have a, a lovely colleague here in London whose work you may know. Perhaps you've even interviewed her, Sebastian, Doctor Anne Alvarez, one of our most distinguished child psychotherapists who. We have not talked to her yet, but uh, oh, yeah, she's on I, the list. I, I warmly recommend her as as a guest because she she speaks beautifully and she's super intelligent, and I think she's probably done more than anybody I can think of in terms of understanding the mind of the autistic child. And I remember one evening we had a conference at the Tavistock Clinic, and Anne was talking about her work. And in the middle of the discussion, she quoted some psychoanalytical authority. And she then said, you know, I love psychoanalysis. And and she said it in such a sweet, such a matter-of-fact way, but such a passionate way. And I thought, my goodness, very few practitioners actually come out publicly and say, 
I love psychoanalysis. And inspired by Anne Alvarez, I'm very happy to say I really, really do love psychoanalysis. I think the insights are absolutely genius. And I don't think that I would be able to do any of my work if I didn't have those ideas readily available to me. You know, I say to all my students, in order to do good work, you need to have a very crowded consulting room. Because although the consulting room might look very, very small with just one analyst and one analysan, maybe one or two chairs and a couch, you need to bring Freud into your office every day. You need to bring Melanie Klein and Eric Erickson and Karen Horney. And, you know, I don't want to, to be uh, discriminatory. I, I, I love all the old heroes and heroines, and I, I read them all constantly. And, 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 and they're all sitting on my shoulder. So in that respect, I do have a very crowded consulting room, but, but I draw upon their, their insights. I mean, for example, Carl Abraham, as you'll remember, back in 1917, wrote a paper on, on sexology, on the, the symptom of premature ejaculation, ejaculatio precox. And almost nobody that I know has ever read that paper or cited that paper, but it's, it's utter genius. And with male patients who suffer from premature ejaculation, I, I go straight to Abraham, and in every instance it has opened the door to the secret behind that very troubling sexual symptom. But let me just push you a bit on this point, because um, isn't there a danger in what you're describing to interpret theoretically and losing touch to the actual patient and the actual situation you find yourself in? That, that's, that is also a, a brilliant question. I hope that I'm not giving the impression that I interpret because I read it in a paper by Carl Abraham. You, you do have to feel it in a more uh, internalized way. It has to come up from the material. But I do think that we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. And when Abraham talks about the man's unconscious wish to soil his partner's body by ejaculating all over the body um, in, in a way that may not always be welcome to the partner, um, you know, I don't feel that you absolutely have to experience that in the countertransference yourself in order to draw upon that as a potential resource. And I think what's really, really interesting now is, is the way in which so many clinicians that I meet, irrespective of what school they uh, ascribe to, who feel that they're not allowed to make an interpretation unless they feel it deeply in the countertransference. And if it works for you, great. But, but I do think that it's not only an emotional experience, but it is also a body of intellectual knowledge. It is a scholarly endeavor. And I do think that we're allowed to work psychoanalytically by drawing upon knowledge. I mean, for example, if you go to see a surgeon and the surgeon has to perform a surgical procedure, the surgeon doesn't say, well, I feel in my countertransference that it would be a good idea to make an incision over here. That, that would be a very, very stupid and unethical and potentially murderous way to conduct surgery. The surgeon would need to draw upon already proven scientific knowledge of, 
what is the best way to operate. And I, I think sometimes we, we don't take advantage enough of the published historical material that is widely available to us. Right. So in a way, if I understand you correctly, you are suggesting that if you listen to the countertransference, at least triangulate it with with some something else, like theory, for example. I, I think to bring all of those different sources of data to bear simultaneously gives one a very, very rich set of interpretive possibilities. It's very interesting that you that you make this point about the countertransference, because in the case histories you describe, um we don't get to hear a whole lot about your countertransferential affects. Mm -hmm. Uh, we we get we get them presented in a more already worked through state. I thought that's that's interesting. I had I'll have to go back and and look at some of my chapters. I, I had thought that in the case of Albertina, the woman who spat compulsively, she she literally spat in the first session about two hundred times, which is a lot of spitting in fifty minutes. I did feel a sense of, of nausea. I thought, oh, my God, this is just, I've never experienced anything like this in my entire life. You know, every human being has saliva in his or her mouth at all times of day and night. But most of us keep our saliva in our mouths. Albertina did nothing but, but spit on the floor of my consulting room. And, and I did feel that it was a form of attack. But I suppose... I, I didn't dwell on the countertransference because I... That's, that's what I meant, yes. I didn't dwell on the countertransference because I also knew that I had to move beyond the state of nausea or disgust or confusion, uh, which was Albertina's state, because she was living with that state probably for the whole of her life. And I had to try to find a way to make sense of what she was communicating and why she was communicating and to see whether some new type of communication could be developed between us. So in the first session, as you'll recall from, from the chapter, Sebastian, this woman whom I called in, in disguised form Albertina, she spat on the floor, she spat on the table, she spat on the bookshelf, she spat on the wall, everywhere. And I was just, I was just literally staggered and, and silenced by this exceptionally unusual behavior that had never happened in my clinical practice or indeed in anyone's practice that I'd read about in the published literature. And then she picked up the telephone in my consulting room and she spat into the telephone. And I thought, oh my goodness, my first countertransferential reaction was Uh, liquidy substance, saliva going into an electrical telephone. You know, will will she set fire to the electrical equipment? Will there be a power failure? <laughs> will 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 I never be able to use the telephone again? But then a thought occurred to me. I thought, this is how she is telling me that she is trying to communicate. So I then did make my first interpretation to her. And I said something along the lines of, you know, you've spat all over the room, Albertina, but now you're spitting into the telephone. And I think you're telling me that although it's very hard for you to find a language in which to speak, there is a part of you 
that wants to communicate something to me directly about all of the private distress that you have been carrying. Those are certainly not my exact words. I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting back on a conversation that took place over 30 years ago. But, but I said something of that nature, really drawing upon the symbolism of the telephone. And she, at that point, stopped spitting. She was able to understand my words. And at that point, she did sit down in the middle of the consulting room floor. And for the first time, she began to shed tears. So I think just the fact that somebody had said to her in a very simple, very softly spoken, very quiet voice, you know, there's a big difference between my public lecturing voice, where I really speak from the diaphragm and, and, and try, to, try to reach the audience, and the voice that I use in the consulting room, which is very, very quiet and very calm. And I think that this had almost a maternal influence upon Albertina, and it allowed her to show her vulnerability and to stop this spitting attack. I think there's a very interesting point you make in in the chapter about well you give very interesting a, a chapter about the top ten of of uh, interpretations which uh, in 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 the form of the title you would you would call it today probably something like clickbait <laughs> because it's it it jumps it jumps out at you right the top ten of 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 interpretations of all time um, there's a very which is actually a meditation on 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 interpretation as a as a technique uh you make a very interesting point about the tone of the interpretation and i think that is what you were just referring to right now right uh, the same interpretation can uh have very different results um depending on 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 what tone uh, you deliver it in I am so glad that you brought up that point. I think because most of the communication that has occurred in worldwide psychoanalysis has been in the form of, of printed words, we often don't get to hear the voice of the practitioner. You know, our, our, our dear buddy, Sigmund Freud, he, he made one very brief recording for the BBC shortly before his death. And he made it at a time when he was very vocally compromised with his prosthesis in his mouth. He could, he could barely speak clearly. He was in immense physical pain from his cancer. So we don't really have a clear sense of what Freud sounded like as a man. We're, we're much more fortunate with Donald Winnicott because he He long preceded me as a wonderful uh, pioneering broadcaster in mental health at, at the BBC. And we have so many of his recordings which survive. And I think you can really hear in Winnicott's voice that there is a very musical quality. And we don't speak often enough in the mental health professions about what I've come to think of as the tonal qualities of how we speak. What is our volume? What is our speed? What is the musicality of our voice? And some people in our field have really, really very 
I think, delightful voices that, that give one a sense of safety and a sense of calm. And I have colleagues who speak entirely in what musicians would call augmented fourth tones. They vacillate back and forth between two very sharp tones. And to somebody who is very musically inclined, it's not a very pleasant sound to listen to. Now, I don't know how one teaches musicality to a psychotherapy or psychoanalytical trainee, but I have sometimes recommended to my, to my students, I said, you know, you need to read the entire works of Freud in the original German, if possible, but it might not be a bad idea to take singing lessons at some point, to, to really learn how to become much more aware of the qualities in your voice, because I think especially with the more damaged patients, the deeply traumatized patients who then gravitate towards psychotic states or towards dissociative states or self-destructive states or other destructive states, I think how one uses one's voice is a very, very big part of the curative process. Oh, absolutely. Have, have you found absolutely. that with your patients, that you your voice changes with different people or your speed absolutely. of delivery changes? With different people and also, I think, uh, with the states that, that uh, me and the patient uh, find themselves in in the session. So even during the, sh the session, the tone will, will change very much. I think, I think it's important. And I'd, I'd love us as a community to, to think more about the musicianship of our voices, really, because it's, it's not something that is easy to teach. And I don't think it always comes up in supervision training sessions. You know, I think it's, I think when two colleagues are talking at a, a fairly rapid speed or an ordinary conversational speed, it's sometimes very hard for the trainee to really convey to the teacher exactly how he or she expressed that interpretation. Yeah, yeah. And we bring we bring protocols to the supervisions, right? So we it's the written That's work again. Right. It's That's not, right. It's not what Well what perhaps has been new said. books yeah. in psychoanalysis, which which does not involve printed text but involves listening to actual voices, perhaps that will help to to make us all more sensitized to that. I think so. It might might do, yeah. But Brett, uh taking a step back from from the vocal register, so to say, um I think because the the setting and the frame uh you work in is so uh so sturdy and so secure, the few instances in which um, you act, you do something really jumped out at me. And I would like to, um, hear a few words uh, from you about the instances, for example, in the case of Alfonso, the forensic patient you talk about in which you explicitly forbid him to touch your books, or in the case of Albertina that we already talked about the nonverbal patient in which you save your diary uh, from her so she doesn't spit on it. <laughs> how, 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 do you, how do you conceptualize the instances in which you act? Yes, that's a, that's a lovely, lovely question. And I may not, maybe that you have a, a better answer than I. You know, most of the time, 
I spend the entire 50-minute session sitting quietly in a chair. A, a very large number of my patients do use the traditional psychoanalytical couch. Um, some of them sit across from me in a chair, about six feet away from my own chair. Obviously, when I work with couples, they are they are sitting in the chairs opposite me. Although sometimes I have often thought it would be really nice in couple psychoanalysis if we did have two couches in the room. <laughs> I've never been brave enough to to try that as an experiment, because sometimes, as you know, in work with couples, the the fighting that can take place makes it very, very hard to, to, to really hear what, what everybody has to say. Um, but, so, you know, so most of the sessions are just very calm and, and often very quiet in that respect. But at times, our body or a symbol of our body will come under attack. I, I, I recently read a, a wonderful book by a group of American psychoanalysts, and, and, and I, I regret to say I cannot exactly recall the name of the title. You may know it. Um, I think the, the American analyst is called Michelle Gomez. She had a patient come into her room carrying a little kitten, a little cat. And at one point, the patient threw the cat at Dr. Gomez, and she caught the cat. Now, that's an extraordinary experience, isn't it? Uh, I, you know, I've been practicing for over 40 years, and I've never had a patient bring an animal into the room and throw it at me. It, you know, it may happen in, in one of my sessions tomorrow, but, but, but very, very unusual. So I think that at times, our bodies are brought into the material in ways that we never expect, and, and we have to react. You know, you can't just sit there if somebody throws a cat at you. And, 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 and this, this colleague from America, I think, did a very, very good job. And she embraced the cat and she interpreted how the patient wanted her to know something about what he may have felt like as a baby, not being properly cuddled in a kittenish way by his mother and so forth. It was a very rich, if unusual, form of communication in psychoanalysis. But yes, with, with some of the patients I described, you're right. Albertina, the compulsive spitting patient, she started to walk towards my my diary, the diary that I write all my appointments in, you know, and, and, and so forth. And in a way, the diary feels like a part of my body. So as she came near my table next to my, my chair and started to uh, generate spit in her mouth, I just instinctively, without even thinking in thinking it through, I just grabbed the diary and gave her a very clear communication that this was part of my most private property, that I was tolerating her need to spit on the floor, even to spit into the telephone, but that the diary, it did feel like a part of my body. And when I've given papers about Albertina at conferences, people always ask, well, Brett, did she ever spit on you? And I assumed that she might spit on me. In fact, when I first took on the referral, my colleagues at the Tavistock Clinic said, you know, you'd better go and see your, your, your medical practitioner, Brett, to make sure that if you are spat on, you know, you, you don't get some kind of uh, uh, septic infection or what have you. And in fact, the reality is this woman in eight years of work although she was a compulsive spitter and she did spit on the staff 
in her psychiatric facility. She never spat on me physically. And I think perhaps she had sensed something about me. I'd, I'd like to think that she had sensed something about me from the beginning, that, that I could be a benign object for her, and that I really was there to try to find a way to help her with this very unusual presenting symptom, this very unusual characterology, this very unusual lifestyle. So she, she never spat upon me, which of course was a great relief. And she didn't spit on the diary because I protected the diary. And with Alfonso, who these are all disguised names, of course, I've, I've, I've taken great, great pains to ensure that the, the actual patient's uh, a, they're patients from very long ago, decades ago, and B, I've changed all the, the names and so forth to help preserve their confidentiality. But Alfonso was a convicted sex offender. He had raped several young children, which is just, it's, it's so horrific. There are, there are no words for the, the horror of, of a grown adult literally physically raping young young children so he was he was a man who had committed vicious acts and we knew from the outset that there was there was the high likelihood that he would do something vicious in his therapy sessions he he never he never actually injured my body uh i i think he might have felt frightened that if he tried to harm me physically as he harmed these young children that i would you know, retaliate or call the police or something of that nature. But he did start destroying furniture in my room. And he ripped the cover of, of one of my books. And at another point, he knocked over a bookshelf. And I tolerated quite a bit of this destruction. And then I realized that I had to actually impose a boundary and say, I'm very happy to continue working with you, Alfonso. But you are not permitted to destroy physical property. You can tell me all you want about your murderous thoughts. You can tell me about your thoughts about wanting to kill me, your hatred towards me for imposing this boundary, but you may not perpetrate physical harm. Now, that, that happens once a decade that I might have to make uh, uh, such a, a key uh, intervention of that kind. You know, ninety-nine point nine percent of our of our patients are very behaviorally respectful. They come into the room, they put their coat down, they might take their shoes off if they're on the couch, they might take some tissues, but essentially they confine their violence to their verbal narrative. Even when they have horrible things to say to us, if they want to turn us into you know transferential monsters on occasion. But I think that we are allowed as practitioners to protect our bodies and to protect our physical spaces. And I think we have to, because I think if we, if we don't impose that boundary, we then become rather like the parent who doesn't stop the child from putting their fingers in an electrical socket, for example. Right, right, right. Thank you, Brett. We're uh, unfortunately already... Uh talking for over over 50 minutes mark <laughs> and and we haven't even haven't even begun to to properly touch upon the chapters on couples therapy but i would really really encourage the listening audience to to get the book to to get into those chapters as well because they're so vital um to the understanding of your style 
of of working with with patients and especially with couples obviously um but one more chapter i wanted to comment on is the historical chapter on Inet Eichholz or Inet Balint, as she was uh, later called as uh, after she married uh, Michael yeah. Balint. And I, I was wondering if in a sense uh, through writing about her and about her amazing ability for networking, for recruiting the most amazing uh, practitioners of the time to uh, do supervision for her staff to to um, to teach at uh, seminars she organized if in a way you were not also writing about yourself and about your ability to bring together such a wide array of of master clinicians and and theoreticians in the field oh there's there's such richness in the question that you've just posed i'm I'm glad you've brought up enid barland we we all know her of course as you said as as enid barland the the wife of, of michael barland the great hungarian-born analyst who came to first to manchester in england and then to london to to flee from the, the national socialist regime mm. But, but Enid, before she married Michael, had a whole rich professional life uh-huh. under the name uh-huh. of Enid uh-huh. Eichholz, the name of her, her first husband. And she really became the founder of couple work in this country. She was brilliant at bringing people together. Uh, another truly, truly lovely woman, a great heroine of mine. And I had the privilege of spending a whole day with her back in 1993. And I was, hmm. I was just... I was really blown away by her brilliance and her kindliness. I, I, I learned so much from her. And there are a million questions I would love to have asked her about about her life and right. her career, which I, I, I didn't get to I didn't get through all the questions on my list in that very moving day. It was just before just before she died, sadly. But the reason I put in a chapter about Enid Eichholz Barlint in this book is that Whereas Winnicott was working during World War II, uh, uh, bringing bombs into his own consulting room by inviting some of his most disturbed patients to live in his house, I think that Enid was doing exactly the opposite. She was trying to fend off the damage and the danger that came from the real bombs, which were dropped on London by the Luftwaffe. Enid Eichholz lived in London. And she worked, she wasn't even trained at this point. It was quite extraordinary. You know, we, ha- we, have such, we have such a snobbery in the field that unless one is fully, fully trained and oh, becomes yeah. an ancient oh, training yeah. analyst, one has no right to speak. But, but Enid uh-huh. Barland had, I think at that point, a bachelor's degree in economics, no less. But she was a very, very committed woman. And you know, England was under threat, literally being bombed on a regular basis. And she said, we need to help people in London because these people don't have homes. Their husbands have been sent to war. Their husbands have been killed. We have widows. We have orphaned children. And she tried to set up basic counseling services at a time when there were fewer than 200 psychoanalysts in the whole 
of Great Britain. I mean, tiny, tiny, mm. you know, to mm. service a population of, of, of over 40 million people at that time, nearly 50 million people. So she was doing something very, very pioneering. So I wanted to juxtapose the Enid Barlinch chapter against the Donald mm-hmm. Winnicott mm-hmm. chapter, but they mm-hmm. were both working in the 1940s. But Enid was really trying to set up the very first attempts at couple therapy. It was done in a very, very experimental, very primitive way, but to try to help people survive the actual bombs that exploded and that were threatening their marriages. And Enid was a very charismatic woman. I I, I met her as an Mm. extremely, she was an extremely old lady when I met her. I, I thought she was very, very beautiful and very beautifully faced. But some of my more senior colleagues who knew her back in the 1950s, for example, said to me often, oh, Brett, you don't realize how sexy Enid Barland was. Mm. She was so sexy in the way she would you know, relate to people and all the men had a crush on her. So I think she was able to use her vitality and her intelligence and, and her sort of, you know, a, a kind of sexy quality in, in, a, in, a, in a very professional way to get all the men at the Tavistock Clinic on her side. So within weeks of meeting them, she got John Bowlby to become an advisor. Michael Barland became the teacher of of her volunteer social workers who were doing the first work with the couples. And it was through that contact that Enid and and Michael met and fell in love and, and then got married. What was very shocking is that because both Michael and Enid had been in previous marriages and divorce back in the early Mm, 1950s in this country was considered such a dreadful sin. I mean, divorce people were not allowed to be near the queen in the royal box at Ascot, for example. It was was really considered a very shocking attack on marriage. So when Enid and Michael married uh, as two divorcees, she felt that she was not able to head up the marital unit at the Tavistock because it would have been considered too scandalous for a divorced right, woman. Right. So she went on and, and then focused on her private independent psychological work and, 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 and wrote some brilliant papers and was a very much loved training analyst to, to the generation above me and, 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 and helped so, so many people. She, she was a great, great clinician, I think. Um, so, yes, uh, she was really good at bringing people together. And I'd like to think that I've tried to learn something from her because mm. I've always enjoyed trying to bring together as many colleagues from as many different accents and backgrounds. And at, at the moment, one of the, the projects that I'm really enjoying is that with a group of colleagues, we've just launched in London the first ever Diploma in Psychopathology. It's a diploma course in psychoanalytical psychopathology. And to the best of my knowledge, we haven't had one of these before. And and with my colleagues from an organization called CONFER, which is one of our Mm -hmm. leading uh, postgraduate continuing professional education bodies, we've pulled together 30 really interesting colleagues to talk about everything from schizophrenia to depression to the borderline states to forensic states you know, you name it. So it's, it's, it's a way of trying to create a, a richer 
more integrated community because we all have so much to learn from one another. There's so much knowledge. That's amazing. Process. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Brad. Uh, and uh, as we're on new books in psychoanalysis, I was wondering if you could tell us as a last question, so to say, um, what are you working on right now? I know you have a number of books coming out and maybe some more in the works. I've just finished a book entitled Dangerous Lunatics, Trauma, Criminality and Forensic Psychotherapy for a new publisher here in London called Confer Books. I'm very excited about this. Very, very talented group of uh, people are starting a, a new small publishing firm in the first instance. And I, I think they're going to they're going to really do some some very great work, and the book that I've I've written, Dangerous Lunatics, it is about the history of forensic mental health, how we treated mad offender patients in previous centuries, and you do know that if you had committed dangerous crimes and were considered to be insane. You know, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, you would have been murdered. Uh, murdering patients was the most effective way to stop crime because no no murdered patient ever went on to commit a further crime. But I talk about the revolution that Sigmund Freud and our forefathers and foremothers instituted with the creation of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis to find a more humane, more compassionate way to get to the roots of crime and to recognize that one isn't just born a criminal. One doesn't just come out of one's mother's womb committing murder and pedophilia and rape and arson. Every single forensic patient, in our experience, has had a very, very grotesquely traumatic history. You know, not just ordinary types of abuse, if one can describe it that way, but, but really truly vicious types of abuse. One of the cases I talk about is a very famous American murderer who was forced to perform cunnilingus, oral sex, upon his mother's genitals as a little boy. I mean, that's a different kind of sexual uh, you know, cruelty between mother and child for a mother to make her young son do that. And then the f stepfather, I believe, Uh, used to beat this boy who later became a vicious murderer. He used to beat him savagely. And, and listen to this, Sebastian. One day, the boy ran into the garden and climbed up a tree to hide from the vicious stepfather in the tree so that he wouldn't be beaten. And the stepfather then took an axe and cut down the tree. So, you know, these stories are, are grotesque. They're really horrific. They're, they're beyond words in many ways. But those of us who work with forensic patients, we hear stories of this nature all the time. You don't just become a murderer because you've got the gene for it or you have some kind of brain dysfunction. There is always trauma. So this book is an attempt to look at what are the traumatic origins of criminality and how mental health professionals have become much more humane in our treatment of these patients over the centuries. Wow, that sounds very interesting. 
And then if I may just take a, a second more, I, I'm also finishing a book which is not unrelated to the forensic field. It, it's about working with psychotic patients, another long-standing interest. And that book is going to be entitled The Traumatic Roots of Schizophrenia, where I look at the role of unconscious parental death threats and death wishes towards hmm. children who later become psychotic. Hmm. Wow, very interesting. And I, I, I read something about uh, you publishing a book uh, about your research in Anna Freud's bedroom as well. Ah, uh, yes, that's that's uh, going to be, uh, that will hopefully come out in about a year's time. I've, I've finished the second draft of that and I'm now just just trying to 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 make it uh, to put all the commas in the right place shall we say oh, wow. Wow. And, and that will be something of a memoir of my very very early years really my 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 time as a young student in my late teens and my early 20s as a young psychology student and the privilege that i had of meeting all the great people like hannah siegel and john bowlby oh, wow. and Eric Erickson and Enid Barland, you know, all, all those wonderful, wonderful people who sadly are no longer with us. And the privilege that I had as a really young man of working in Sigmund Freud's house in Anna Freud's old bedroom, when the private house of the Freud family became transformed into what we now call the Freud Museum London, which is a great living shrine to these remarkable people sigmund freud and anna freud wow so many interesting new volumes coming up we will have to have you back on that would be a privilege a real pleasure and can i just say that this is one of the most enjoyable interviews that i've i've had sebastian you really have facilitated this you've curated it if i may say in, in such a such a wonderful way and i i love the questions you've really got me thinking thank you very much it's been a pleasure well I think we have to come to a close now. Thank you very much for your time, Brett, and uh, for for the patience for our listening audience. We've had some technical problems that I think will uh, we have managed quite well to work through. So thank you so much for for sticking with us. And um, yeah, like I said, we'll have to have you back on. Till then, um, keep up the good work, Brett. Thanks very much. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.